passage is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 29 on page 1008 on the Church Bibles. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, amongst his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Pick up at verse 17. For Herod himself had been given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had always been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let me lead us in a prayer and ask for God's help. Thank you, Father, for this gospel, this good news of Jesus revealed to us in your word. And we thank you for this passage and what we see of Jesus here and the power of his word. We pray, our Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us, Father, to hear and to respond rightly to what you have to say to us. 
for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the subject we're looking at this evening, I think is a bit of an uncomfortable one. Uh, The subject we're going to be looking at is the subject of division. Uh, We're going to be looking at the division Jesus' words cause. And I don't know about you, but division doesn't sit easy with me. It's not something I'm massively comfortable with. Um, I don't know if that's just me, uh, but probably not. Um, I was reading a book uh, a while ago called Watching the English, and it's a book about English culture. Uh, I realize not all of us are English here this evening, uh, uh, but for those of us who are, uh, this book is absolutely hilarious because it goes through every sort of English trait, and uh, it's not meant to be a comedy book, but it is quite funny when you think uh, what the English get up to. And one of the things the author, Kate Fox, points out is the English tendency to agreeableness. So she talks about the weather, uh, which is obviously a favorite English pastime. Uh, she says that actually when you... Oh, just well, steady on. Uh, she says... Sorry, I don't want to disagree, but uh, uh, she says that... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, she says that with the weather, you obviously, you know, talk about the weather. And the thing to do when you talk about the weather is to agree with the other person. So if the person comes in and says it's cold, you don't turn around and say, well, I don't think it is. In fact, that would kill the conversation dead. Uh, here's what she says, uh, ready for the quote. Uh, we have already established that the weather speak greetings or openers such as cold, isn't it, must be reciprocated uh, by etiquette. Uh, but etiquette also requires that the response express agreement. As in, yes, isn't it? Or, hmm, very cold. Failure to agree in this manner is a serious breach of etiquette. She goes on. When the priest says, Lord, have mercy upon us, you do not respond, well, actually, why should he? You intone dutifully, Christ, have mercy upon us. In the same way, it would be very rude to respond, ooh, isn't it cold? With no, actually, it's quite mild. Now, Yes, she's talking about the weather, but you'll, you'll pick up there that actually she's onto something far deeper in English culture and probably in a lot of cultures around the world. That we have that deep aversion to being disagreeable. We want to get along with people. We want everyone to agree. And so when we come to a passage like the one we see this evening, it jars against us. It's not very English, not very Church of England. But actually, we're going to see at the heart of this passage, division is, all what, is what Jesus' words do. In fact, if his words don't divide, Mark would get us to ask, have we really understood them? Now, how do we see this this evening? Well, we are presented with three episodes here. Uh, three episodes that have something in common uh, in each of them. Uh, in each of them, a word is preached and a response is, uh, is seen. A word is preached and a response is seen. And each, three, each of these three episodes show us that Jesus' words divide. So let's look at this first one. We see here, first of all, that a divided response to Jesus is inevitable. We see this in verses 1 to 6. Uh, this is the first time that Jesus goes back to his hometown. He's been around Galilee in the north. He's done miracles. He's, uh, he's, he's taught crowds. But this is the first time he decides to go to his hometown, which is about 25 miles away. And I don't know what your experience of going to your hometown is. Perhaps it's Basingstoke, perhaps somewhere else. But for me, 
although the place I grew up was, you know, nothing to write home about, it's got a special connection. As I go home, I, I see the streets that I used to cycle on my BMX on, or uh, the parks I used to kick a football around in. And chances are, I'll walk down the high street, and um, people will recognize me. I may not want them to recognize me, but they probably will. There's something very special you have, in connect, uh, something that's always connected to your hometown. And I guess the same could be said of Jesus. This is the moment he's going back to his friends and family, the, the people he played football with, the people he grew up with. But the reception couldn't be any different. Look at verse 3. They start to say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, that word offense, it's a very strong word. It's a word that's often translated fall away. It's where we get our English word scandal from. And what they're doing here is not just kind of asking these questions out of genuine motives. Uh, they're, they're rejecting Jesus. They're saying, get out. And if some of us are from more kind of traditional cultures, we'll know how painful this is to be excluded and rejected by your family in your hometown. Well, it is the ultimate punishment. And here's Jesus being kicked out. But Mark here, in his account, draws our attention to why that is. See, why is it they react this way? Well, it's not because they don't believe Jesus' testimony. Uh, notice in verse 2, they, they recognize the signs. that There's no debate over these miracles. Uh, and notice also that it's not that they're not impressed by him. That we're told they're amazed at his teaching. Verse 2 tells us that they saw him as wise. Rather, the issue comes with what he does in verse 2. We read there that when, Sabbath, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. See, Jesus began to teach. And you'll remember, or maybe don't remember, I'll remind us anyway, but throughout Mark, Jesus has done that. Uh, right at the beginning of the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus arrives on the scene and he begins to teach and he says, repent and believe the good news. And in chapter 1 verse 38, he says to his disciples that he has to move on because he has been sent to preach. And here is Jesus doing that preaching. He's bringing this message of repentance and belief to his hometown. But his hometown don't want to hear it. They can handle the healings. They can handle the wisdom. They just don't want that call on their lives, and certainly not from someone they know. See, what they can't deal with is that call to repentance and belief. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that this is the sort of power Jesus' words have. Uh, Jesus didn't come just to heal. He didn't come just to inspire us. But he came with a call to repent and to believe the good news. And unless that sort of response is elicited, we've got to wonder whether we've understood Jesus' words. Uh, see, Jesus' call is such an affront to our own autonomy that there will be that bit of us that kicks back at it and says, no way. 
And if we've not experienced that, well, maybe you're far more sanctified than I am. Or maybe it is that we've not understood the radical nature of what Jesus calls us to. But maybe we're asking, why does it have to be this way? Why, why the division? Well, secondly, we see here that this divided response is intentional. Uh, in the next part of this passage, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. He's called them, uh, but this is the first time he sends them out on mission. And notice what they did when they were sent out. Uh, verse 12, we read that they went out and preached that people should repent. Now, hopefully that's ringing kind of, you know, alarm, not alarm bells, but it's, it's bringing our minds back to what we've seen already. Here, they're being sent out to do exactly what Jesus has been doing in bringing this message of repentance. But notice what Jesus instructs them to do in verse 8 and 9. We read there that Jesus says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. See, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I kind of began scratching my head thinking, why are we told so much about the packing list of these disciples, or rather the lack of a packing list? Uh, they're, they're to go out and they're to take no luggage as they bring this message of repentance. And, and why does Mark spend his time telling us that? But imagine for, your, for a second that you were sent on a similar mission. Imagine you were sent out to go west of Basingstoke, but you weren't allowed to take any contactless cards, any form of payment. You weren't allowed to take a packed lunch. You were to just go out, not even an overcoat. You were just to go out in a T-shirt and jeans and perhaps a walking stick if you wanted it. And you're to walk east from Basingstoke. Now, I imagine um, probably I would get to Old Basin or somewhere like that and start to think of myself, I'm pretty hungry now. And maybe you're better than me. Maybe you'll make it to Hook or something like that. But eventually, you'll start to get hungry. And uh, if you go on a bit further, I don't know, by Woking or something like that, the, the, the lights would start to dim, the sun would go down, and it, you'll be starting to think, I've probably got to kind of stay over somewhere. Now, what are your options at that point? You've got no contactless cards. I mean, I can see some of our young adults sweating uh, with fear, but you've got no mobile phone. I mean, imagine such a thing. And you, you've, got, you've got no options. The only thing you can do at that point is rely on someone to take you in, someone to feed you, someone to show you hospitality. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. See, and if they arrived at a town that didn't welcome them, well, we read in verse 11, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. That idea of shaking the dust, it's um, what rabbis used to do as they crossed the border from Gentile territory back into Israel. And the idea is that they would leave every kind of um, bit of dust from the Gentile land uh, in the Gentile land and not take it into Israel with, on the understanding that if God judged the Gentiles... Well, they didn't want a bit of Israel judged at the same time. I mean, it's questionable logic, but it was a, a very familiar sign of judgment of the apostles turning their back. Now, why are they to do this? I mean, is this a kind of blueprint for us to do mission? Should we, you know, go out with just a walking stick and tell people about Jesus without 
taking a packed lunch, that sort of thing. Well, I don't think it's about that. See, I think what it's showing us is what's at stake in how we respond to Jesus. See, these people, they don't get a second chance. The apostles can't stay with them to see if they warm up a little bit. They can't preach the message for years, hoping that perhaps one day they'll turn around. It's not like that. The decision's very immediate, very binary. Either you repent and believe, or you lose the message altogether. And what Mark is showing us here is a preview of this future judgment that Jesus will go on to speak about. That actually what matters is how we respond now to Jesus' call to repent. And in this episode, it's like Mark is dragging forward that future repentance and showing that this is the decision we face today. See, what it shows us is that Jesus' words really matter. They're not kind of for-your-information words that we can take or leave. They're not words that we might get inspired by but not really act on. They're, they're words that require an immediate response. Words like um, fire, get out. See, if you're in a house and someone shouts fire, get out, you don't sort of think to yourself, well, actually, I've got 20 minutes on this program. I'm going to see it out. Or uh, actually, do you know what? I'm enjoying my life in this house right now. I'm not going to come out. You, you get out the house. And Jesus' words are like those sort of words. It's not saying that we're not patient with people. It's not saying that we have to kind of immediately tell them about Jesus and then you know, kick the dust off as, if they ask any questions. But it is showing us that when it comes to Jesus' words, they matter. They're life and death. Now, maybe you're not convinced of that. Maybe you think to yourself, surely there's a, a, a middle way here. Maybe we could be a bit more English about this and, and not disagree. But in our third episode, we're shown that actually that isn't really an option. An indecisive response is impossible. See, in this last episode, we meet Herod. Um, this isn't the Christmas Herod, uh, but his son, Herod Antipas. And Herod, we're told, arrests John. Uh, but it's not like he doesn't like John. He, um, we're told in verse 18 that uh, he liked to, sorry, not verse 18, but uh, verse 20, that he feared John and he liked hearing from John. But the problem is, Herod, uh, John has a message for Herod. And it's the message that his relationship is not lawful, it's not pleasing to God. In other words, John is coming to Herod with a message of repentance, just like we've seen in those other two episodes. But the thing is, Herod doesn't act on that. Uh, but it's not that he denies it, but he, he sits on the fence. See, Herod thinks to himself, I can have the kind of interesting God. I can have the kind of church going. I can get John out to talk to me about divine things every now and again. But actually, I'm not going to make that step of repentance. I'll keep Jesus at arm's length. See, Herod's thinking to himself, I'll have the cake and I'll eat it. But Mark goes on to show us that that failure to make a decision really has disastrous consequences. Uh, with every good story, there's a baddie, isn't there? And this one, uh, the baddie's called Herodias, and she had it in for John. John's talking about her marriage being illegitimate, and uh, she hated John, and she wanted him dead. 
But there's a problem because Herod liked John and he wanted to keep him safe. But then an opportunity comes at his birthday party. And who knows, it was perhaps the booze or the kind of swagger he had in front of his friends. But Herod makes this promise uh, when Herodias' daughter comes out and provides the entertainment. He makes this oath in verse 23, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she rushes back to her mother and, you know, I, you know what's she going to say? I, I want a pony, I want a kind of swimming pool, something like that. He's offered half his kingdom. But her mother says the, the head of John the Baptist. And she rushes back to Herod. And we're drawn into Herod's predicament as he has to make this agonizing choice. Does he do the right thing? Or does he give in to peer pressure and oath, uh, and his oath and kill John? And Herod makes the wrong decision. He kills John, presents his head on a platter. And Mark puts this here, I think, because he's showing us what's at stake when we hear Jesus' words. See, Herod thought he, he was more clever than John. He thought to himself, I can hold him at arm's length. I don't have to repent But actually, if he repented, Herodias would have been nowhere here, and the problem would not have arisen. And Mark is showing us that that indecision, that inability to to act on what uh, Jesus calls him to, really has disastrous consequences. See, at the end of this gospel, we're going to see another very similar decision. We're going to see another ruler who makes an agonizing choice over someone he knows is righteous. We're going to see Pilate hearing the murderous cries of the crowd and seeing that Jesus is innocent. And just like Herod, we're going to see Pilate make the wrong choice as he decides not to submit to him as king, but to put him to death. And John here is previewing that choice that Pilate makes and all of us have to make. Will we acknowledge Jesus? Will we respond to his call to repent and believe? Or will we think to ourselves, I can have Jesus and I can have the relationship. Or I can have Jesus and I can have the church stuff, but actually I'm not going to give Jesus my whole life. Or sure, I'll be interested in these things on a Sunday, but actually Monday to Saturday looks very different. See, there is no ability to sit on the fence. Whether it's the kind of flat-out rejection of Jesus' hometown or the indecision of Herod, both end up in the same place. They both end up rejecting God's word. Now, as we close, what does this uh, mean for us uh, here at St. Mary's? Well, um, one of the questions I was thinking through off the back of this is, who am I meant to be in the passage? Am I meant to be kind of John the Baptist, heroic, uh, standing up to Herod? Am I meant to be one of the 12 sent out by Jesus uh, to speak the message? But before we kind of read ourselves into the passage, I think we need to stand back and think, actually, we're uh, being addressed by the passage. Actually, here Mark is showing us that actually this is a response we all need to make. And it might just be that some of us here have not made that step. Now, we want to be a church where we're open for people to explore. We want to be the sort of church where there's no strong arm in. We're not forcing anyone to say anything they don't believe. But there is a stage, and I felt it myself, where you look at the evidence and you know it's true, but you do face that choice. Am I going to accept it's true? 
And it might just be that some of us need to hear that this evening, that actually that indecision is not an option. There's no such thing as fence-sitting when it comes to Jesus. And for those of us who have made that decision, here's a reminder to think, actually, this is the power of Jesus' words. I don't know about you, but it can be very easy being a Christian for a few years to kind of go through the motions, to become quite familiar with what Jesus says, and to forget that actually there is a very strong demand on us. Now, perhaps you don't have that kind of fight in your heart. Perhaps you're much more spiritual than I am. Or maybe it's actually we've become over-familiar with Jesus' words. And finally, I think there's a lesson for us as a church as we seek to take this word out to our town and to the region around us. This is the sort of reaction we should expect. I don't know about you, but as I said at the beginning, I'm quite agreeable. I don't like to rub people up the wrong way. And my tendency is to hold back if I, if I sense that anyone's going to disagree. But here's a reminder that actually that's what Jesus' words are designed to do. They are designed to divide. And that should be the expected response. See, if that never happens to us, well, maybe you're uniquely blessed in evangelism. And if you are, come and speak to me afterwards and I will give you a job. (laughs) But for the rest of us, I guess it might be that we're actually not as bold as we could be. I know I'm not so often. But as we close, at the end of this passage, we didn't read it out, but we read in verse 31 that the disciples came back and because of that, there was a crowd So many people coming and going that uh, Jesus and the disciples didn't even have a chance to eat. And it's a reminder that whilst there's division, whilst there's rejection, there are thousands and thousands of people who hear this message of repentance and belief and carry it out. See, as the disciples took this message out, yes, there was division, but many people embraced it. Many people saw the life given nature of Jesus, the freedom that comes from repentance and belief in him, and they chose to come to him. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's not comfortable division, it's not very English, not very Church of England, but it is what uh, lies at the heart of Jesus' message. Let's pray. We pray our Heavenly Father, as we look And think again on the power of Jesus' words, that you would give us hearts that are ready to respond to his call to repent and believe. And we pray that we would be those who, as he speaks of in chapter 4, be good soil, who respond rightly. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, thanks for the questions. Uh, Rob, let's pick up on this one first. Why could Jesus not do any miracles? Was it the people's unbelief that neutralized his power? Or did they just stay away from him, or was it something else? Thank you. Um, Great question. I think uh, some people argue that that you kind of, uh, in chapter 5, you see that actually the miracle is linked to faith, and because of the people's lack of faith, Jesus couldn't do the miracle. Um, That might be possible, but... I guess it kind of limits Jesus' uh, ability to do miracles onto faith, and there's all sorts of problems with that. Um, I think a much more likely explanation comes, um, I think we're clued into it at the end of um, halfway through chapter 4, where Jesus says this, Consider carefully what you hear. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So here's Jesus saying that actually uh, it's a very dangerous place to, to deny him because n- not only what you have uh, you'll lose, but no, sorry, you're, even what you have will be taken away from you. So I think here Jesus is withdrawing from his hometown, not doing the miracles uh, as a sign that actually that's what's happening and taking place at this point. Now, it's quite interesting that, isn't it? Because that's the opposite to how we imagine things happen. We imagine that uh, there's some unbelief and Jesus does loads of miracles to kind of convince the people to believe. Uh, But actually, miracles in Mark's gospel are linked to belief. And actually, there's a very chilling message here that actually if we deny Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that actually he withdraws and doesn't kind of just do miracle after miracle to try and convince us. So I think it's because the hometown deny him that actually what they had is then sadly taken away from them. Discuss later. But. Yeah, clear. Uh, next question. Does this passage affect how we understand or should understand Jesus' words? Some of his, uh, his words are hard to apply to life in 2023. How do we decide what is applicable today rather than being cultural for the first century? I guess that's, um, forgive me, I'm, I'm kind of picking up on the question here, but I guess that's talking about what you're talking about in that kind of uh, the shaking the dust off the feet, those kind of those kind of actions. Yeah. How do we how do we square that with what we do yeah. today? Thank you. I, 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 I've taken the question that way as well. Um, yeah, I don't think this is saying that this is a, an evangelism technique. I don't think it's saying you go to office or building site tomorrow, or whatever, and start kind of shaking your feet off at people. I don't think it's saying that. I think what it is, as I said in the sermon, I think what it is showing us is the kind of, it's fast forwarding that very binary decision that has um, uh, very big consequences in the future. And I think it's a a unique uh, moment for these 12 as they do that. They're kind of bringing on that judgment uh, that I think we leave to Jesus. So I don't think it's saying that we only give people one chance. I don't think it's saying that we don't go out with any money or anything like that. But what I do think it is saying is that actually there's a, there is something very life and death. There's a very big decision people need to make. And, and actually, um, we may not be the 12, but we do carry that same commission of actually taking that word out to people. And actually, when we speak Jesus' words, we're not persuading them to like, you know, our football team or politics or anything like that. I can talk about, you know, politics. I could talk about football teams, but that's, that's of a different league. I mean, this is a message of life, of um, forgiveness from judgment, and uh, it's, a, it's a whole different caliber. So I think that's what it's showing rather than uh, this is a prescription for how we follow mission today. Um, I think how do we understand Jesus' words? Well, I think that message of repent and believe will look different for all of us. It, for John, uh, for, for Herod in the first century, it looked like giving up this relationship and actually listening to John. Uh, for me, it would look like something different. For you, Steve, it looked like something else. And there would be all sorts of scenarios. And I guess if we asked you, we'd all have a story about how uh, God put his finger on different aspects of our life that we needed to turn from. Uh, so I think that message of repent and believe is universal. Um, some of the things are cultural for that first century, but that one isn't. So, and we didn't talk about this, but I'm going to ask it. So as a follow-on, as you were talking, how, how would we get better at being 
more culturally relevant and still staying, staying true to what Jesus commissions us all to do as Christians. Um, thank you. You did spring that on me, didn't you? <laughs> How do we stay culturally relevant? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think that message of repentance is for every generation. And I think um, that doesn't mean we call out specific sins for people, but we've got to ask that question, what does it mean for me to turn? And, and the word repentance at its heart really means to change mind. It means to go 180. I was going that way and I'm going to go a different way. And I guess we've got to do the, the work of thinking, actually, uh, what are the things I'm living for that are displeasing to God uh, and what, have, what is it he's calling me to turn? That's a really lousy answer. I tell you what, you're better. You're better at this. Answer, yeah. Why don't you answer in tea and coffee afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the kind of get out, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But yeah. What does it look like today? I think. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.